Hey guys, welcome back to Caffeine and Crime. And to heartbreak or broken hearts, whatever you want to call it, season. This is the very last episode, so there is nine other that you can check out from this season. We focused a lot on women killers and more than anything, just like gut-wrenching cases that literally just make me sick to my stomach by the time I'm done recording them. And although I feel that way with just about every single episode that I've recorded, these are just like that extra punch in the gut, I feel like. Um, it's been a hard season to get through. I don't know if I would ever bring this one back for that reason. I feel like I kind of need to switch it up a little bit and change things around. I'm really excited because spooky season is next, so we'll take a break from true crime and talk more about um, haunted places, so stay tuned for that. It's coming very soon, but we do have to close out this season, and this is the last episode, and then it'll be wrap-up time. Before we jump in, I just want to remind you guys that if you've been listening to Caffeine and Crime, please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Also, there is links in the description. You can check out the YouTube channel. It's back up and going slowly but steady. And there's also the blog. There is a blog that goes up with every single episode that showcases photos and links that are mentioned throughout the episodes. If you scroll to the bottom of each blog, there is also the links to each blog that goes with the season. So each episode is there. You can click on it and it also will be linked to the episodes to listen to. And while you're at it, if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can at Caffeine Crime Podcast for updates on when episodes go up on podcast platforms and on YouTube. You can also reach me there by message or comment to talk about any of the cases that I mention or to just chat about true crime in general. Let's go ahead and get into today's episode. We're going to be talking about Blanche Taylor Moore. Born on February 17th, 1933, Blanche Kaiser. Now we don't really hear too much or see too much about her mother being in the picture. But her father is the one who raised her, Parker D. Kaiser. He was a Baptist minister, but he wasn't really, um, I don't think ever really involved like with churches. It was mainly he would just go maybe like church to church and, you know, do sermons, but not really had like a church of his own. I think it was even said that he would like go on the streets and like kind of do sermons in the streets and, you know, different things like that. And while he may have seemed like a okay guy to most people that would see him as being this minister and raising his young daughter, he wasn't a great person. They lived in Alamance County, North Carolina, and her father, besides being a minister, he was also a mill worker, but the biggest thing that we know about him was that he had a huge gambling problem, which caused a lot of stress in the household because he would gamble their money away and also became an alcoholic. He was known to be a womanizer as well was all about the women and people thought it was crazy that he could be quoting scripture and then in the same sentence have a 
explicit sexual comment thrown in. As Blanche grew, the money problems got harder and harder on the family as her father was still drinking and gambling their money away that he decided he would make young Blanche start quote-unquote prostituting herself to pay the gambling debts that the family had. This went on for years and in 1952 is when she finally got away from living underneath her father. She moved in and married James Napoleon Taylor, a veteran and furniture restorer. Just a year later, she had a child and also started working at a Kroger as a cashier. By 1959, she had another child with James and she had been promoted to head cashier, which pretty much back then was the same as like um, like the manager. The highest job that was available um, to, at the time, a female employee at Kroger. Then her life started to go south when in 1962 she began an affair with Raymond Reed, the manager of the store where she worked. So soon after having Vanessa and Cindy, the couple started to run into a lot of issues. When Blanche started to realize that James was a lot like her father, he started drinking very heavily and started gambling as well. I'm sure this was kind of like a triggering thing for her to experience as well. I'm not saying an affair is the right way to go in the situation, but I can't imagine leaving and escaping the household you're in just to go into another one that's exactly the same. James would disappear for sometimes whole weekends, returning empty-handed um, with just like little excuses here and there that you know, they, he had lost more money, but not really trying to tell her that he was gambling. He would try to make up like an excuse like, you know, this happened. That's how, you know, we lost money, that type of ordeal. Also known that while she was having affairs, apparently more than one started really heating up things into violent arguments in the home. So James was kind of aware of it. I'm assuming he would go away for the weekend drinking and gambling and come home and find out that another man had been in his home. Although the couple started seeing each other, it was kind of breaking up two homes because Raymond Reed was also married. He had two children of his own. It took three years of determined flirtation for Blanche to land him, but she never lacked for male companionship in terms of one night stands. She was spotted with another man, Kevin Denton. He was the regional manager, I guess, from the area that would, like, travel in and, like, check in on different stores. And although it seemed that they had a relationship, it actually ended pretty fast. And soon after, Blanche filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against Denton and Kroger in October of 1985. He was forced to resign, and Kroger settled the case out of the court for two years later for $275,000, and this was in the 80s. Can you imagine? In September of 1966, Blanche decided to uh, maybe try to have a relationship with her father after all these years. But around the time that she was there, his health took a turn for the worst. She said that she forgave him and started taking care of him. She was always at his side. She nursed him and and 
did so until his death. He died of a heart attack that was triggered by chronic issues that he had going on. Doctors managed to somehow overlook symptoms, including uh, violent stomach cramps, diarrhea, projectile vomiting, delirium, and a bright blue face, which apparently points straight to the death by arsenic poisoning. In 1968, James Taylor had a near-fatal heart attack. It kind of opened his eyes up, and he decided to stop doing what he was doing, and it, it was almost like one of those like eye-opening moments of like, okay, I'm throwing my life away, I'm drinking, I'm gambling, and he decided to repent and get saved. And in Blanche's own words, she says he became the perfect husband and father, but her ongoing love affair with Raymond Reed continued. But another responsibility soon became present in Blanche's life when her mother-in-law, Isla Taylor, was bedridden and Blanche did her best to make the woman as comfortable as she could. Isla died on November 25th, 1970, and doctors said that her passing was natural causes. Once again, they missed the eyeballs that had turned a brilliant cobalt blue, along with quantities of undigested arsenic remaining in the woman's stomach. Raymond Reed abandoned his wife and children in 1971, renting a small apartment and filing for divorce. Blanche made a daily routine of stopping by to cook him breakfast, proclaiming him helpless without her. Word started to circulate around the Kroger um, of this affair going on, and then it went through the town. But in September of 1970, James Taylor came down with the flu, sporting symptoms that included diarrhea, swollen glands, and a sore throat. He also had hair loss, bloody stool, and urine, painful blisters on his hands and feet, and had to be hospitalized near the end of the month. He died barely an hour after Blanche brought him some ice cream from home. All of James's modest estate was left to Blanche. Now that she had James's estate, she moved and got a new home in Burlington. Raymond Reed's divorce was finalized in 1973, and at this point it was kind of like he was just waiting on Blanche. Right before Blanche had left Kroger, she met Reverend Dwight Moore. They started a little fling together, but had to keep it on the down low because Blanche was in the middle of her lawsuit against Kroger, and she wanted to come off as this hurt woman who had went through this, and this is all speculation. I'm not saying that she was completely corrupt here. Obviously, we don't know exactly what happened behind those closed doors or what went down. At one point, it kind of sounds like a woman who is taking advantage of the situation because she was dating her manager and he shouldn't have been fooling around with her. So she kind of took advantage of that. Maybe they were rocky and he was going to break up with her and then she filed the harassment. Or it could have actually been in harassment and he just thought, I'm, you know, head over her. She's not going to say anything. You honestly never know with cases like this. But it has been known that she was dating Dwight Moore and that they kept it hush-hush because she wanted to keep this demeanor of, like, hating men and um, not being around anybody of the opposite sex. But... 
And while she was dating him, she actually asked him if he could make up some type of arsenic-based ant killer for her. Which is a little strange. Blanche introduced herself to Dwight after his Easter service. He started to counsel her to help her through her lawsuit with Kroger that had dragged on, and this is how they would see each other. Soon, they were meeting for meals and on casual basis. Blanche started dropping hints to her friends that she might marry a preacher man in the next year or so. On January 23rd, 1985, a mysterious fire broke out at her Burlington home. She blamed a quote-unquote pervert for the blaze. The fireman confirmed arson as the cause, accepting her tale of the nameless man seen around her property. She collected a little fire insurance, investing the cash in the new mobile home. When only a month later, this trailer caught on fire, she blamed the same quote-unquote pervert again and collected another insurance check. And now back to Raymond Reed. I know these episodes always have so many names, but Raymond Reed, he was the the guy she started having the affair with, with after while she was married to her first husband. In 1986, he developed what was initially diagnosed as a case of shingles. He was hospitalized in April of that year, but died on October 7th, 1986. And doctors just thought the cause of death was Gullion-Barre syndrome. In the hospital, Raymond had the same symptoms of diarrhea, vomiting, and loss of feeling in his hands and feet. Ironically, physicians missed the classic warning signs of arsenic poisoning. During this time, his doctor did order special tests for heavy metal intoxication. On June 27th, it was a urine scan, and it actually revealed that it was six times the normal amount of arsenic in his system, but somehow these test tubes got lost in the switch of nurses. His health got worse and worse the next three months. And during this time, Blanche was by his side, and she also helped him drop a new will, naming herself the beneficiary of one-third of his estate. The rest was to be dieted up between his sons. She came to the hospital daily to see him, brought him gifts of food, including homemade pudding and milkshakes. Despite her loving care and the doctor's best efforts, he did decline to a point to where he was in intensive care on October 4th. By the time he died, three days later, he gained 60 pounds and retained body fluids, bloating so severely that his skin began to rip. This is why that very rare syndrome took the blame for his death. And when an autopsy was brought up, Blanche requested for there not to be one and tried to even hide this from Raymond's own sons. Days later, Blanche was escorted by Dwight Moore to Raymond's funeral. She collected $30,000 from Raymond's estate, plus untold contents looted from his safe deposit box in a safe in his home. And if that wasn't enough, she even took 45797 from Raymond's own kids' money from their father's life insurance because she said that Raymond would have wanted her to have it. 
And this honestly just goes to show what type of person this Dwight, Reverend Dwight is, because they decided that they needed to have a little bit of a pause, what they called a decent period of mourning before it was time to tie the knot. The lawsuit that she had going on with Kroger was actually settled a year after Freeman had died. Blanche and Reverend Dwight Moore began seeing each other publicly um, right after, and they planned to marry. But in 1987, Blanche developed breast cancer. So they had to kind of postpone everything and push it back until the next year in November of 1988. But by then, Dwight had developed a mysterious intest intestinal alignment that required two surgeries to correct. On April 19th of 1989, the couple were finally married and honeymooned over a long weekend in New Jersey. On April 26th, after their honeymoon, they're on their way home and Dwight collapsed after eating a pastry on the Cape May Ferry. Instead of going to like see a doctor or going to the hospital in New Jersey while they're away on their honeymoon, Blanche drove him back to Burlington for two days of nursing at home. Two days later, he was admitted to the hospital. He had taken a turn for the worse, and Blanche was still at his side taking care of him, bringing him homemade soup. After doctors couldn't find out what was wrong with him, they sent him home without a diagnosis or cure. And he became worse and worse, especially after each meal. Blanche drove him to North Carolina Memorial Hospital, but they wouldn't take him without a written reference from Alamance County. So he was taken home again. He had retained 40 pounds of body fluid in 24 hours and was literally on his deathbed. And Blanche took him back to Alamance County Hospital. He was passed on again to North Carolina Memorial, this time with the paperwork. Blanche told Dwight's family he was fine, simply hospita hospitalized to do some tests. A toxic screen was ordered, and the results filed on May 13th were very alarming to all the doctors. His body contained 20 times the lethal dose of arsenic, enough quite literally to kill a moose. Police were called. Dwight denied any suggestion that Blanche could be the blame for this. He said that he must have inhaled the poison while spraying his garden for pest. Blanche was questioned by the police on June 6th. She denied bringing any food when he was ill and just it was completely the opposite of what the hospital was telling the police. During interviews, she mentioned that both Dwight Moore and Raymond Reed felt depressed, had probably been taking arsenic, something that was found highly improbable, of course. Then it was when they discovered that she had been sleeping with Raymond around the same time she began dating Dwight. They started putting all of these pieces together and also all of the little things that she was doing, such as she had cut Dwight's hair um, right before an attempt to prevent hair samples from being obtained. Apparently, she didn't think this through because they had then switched and used pubic hair to test. And on July 18th, 1989, she was arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of Raymond Reed. 
Prosecutors opted to charge her with killing Reed rather than trying to kill Dwight Moore because they felt they'd be able to show her spooning arsenic-laced pudding to Reed. In Dwight Moore's case, doctors had recognized the signs of arsenic poisoning early on, making it more difficult to find out who was poisoning him. Blanche's trial for the murder of Raymond Reed opened in Winston-Salem on October 21, 1990. Accused of being the Black Widow of the South, she defended herself of any wrongdoings. State buried her plea of innocence with 53 witnesses who recalled her daily trips to the hospital, burying food for Raymond as he lay dying, racked with pain. At the trial, Blanche denied that she poisoned her lover or either of her husbands. She said, I know arsenic was found in these people, but it's not because I put it there because I didn't do it. She also said she never physically harmed an individual. She described herself as a very giving person who tried to be there for others and to do help wherever she could. Dwight Moore, who survived the arsenic poisoning, said that there's some truth and a lot of falsehood. She has a very good memory of the things she likes to remember. He also mentioned during an interview that if he had died, his wife might have inherited as much as $75,000, but he said that he did not believe her reason for allegedly poisoning him was financial. He said, I think her motive was her inability to actually express her dissatisfaction with people or with folks is what he said. And he also said it was easier for her to do this than to say no, which is honestly really sad. After Blanche's testimony, her daughters Vanessa Woods and Cindy Chapman said they believed their mother had done well on the stand. There was an occasional burst of irritation, but nothing more than that. Vanessa said, I thought it was a very good and very truthful, and I am very proud of her. The prosecution and the defense didn't really pay much attention to the a letter that was written uh, to Moore in prison by James Garvin Thomas. He was a man from Burlington who died before she received his letter. And in the letter, it was addressed to my dearest darling. Thomas took responsibility for poisoning both of Moore's husbands as well as Reed out of jealousy and love for her. A prosecution handwriting expert said earlier in the trial that the letter was a jailhouse forgery by Moore. So she had written a letter claiming to be James Garvin Thomas, claiming that he killed them when, oh my gosh, this lady. She really was going to try anything that she could though. On October 14th, 1990, Blanche Taylor Moore was 57. She had spent the last 14 months in the Alamance County Jail protesting still her innocence. She stood trial of the charge of poisoning her longtime boyfriend, Raymond C. Reed, 50, who died in 1986. If convicted, she faces either life imprisonment or the death penalty. The prosecutor said, I know she looks nice and she looks like everybody's grandmother, but I accept that that's the challenge of the prosecution to overcome that. This isn't ordinary. This is extraordinary. The mathematics of it are powerful, and I believe in them. Other people that was at this trial were her brother Sam, who said, As God is my witness, I do not see a dark side to my sister, nor have I ever seen a dark side. She was more willing to give to people than to receive from people. She didn't believe in making her good deeds known. She was just a caring person. But the prosecutors went on to claim that she had 
said that she hated her alleged victims for they were cruel or evil. And she also expressed the desire not to be married to or to no longer see the victim. The victim's sons testified at this. There was quite a few people who took the stand. Jurors convicted Blanche for Reed's murder on November 14th, coming back three days later with a recommendation of death. The judge made it official on January 18th, 1991, when he sentenced Blanche to die by lethal injection. With automatic appeals and progress, no date had been set for the trial of the death of James Taylor or the attempted murder of Dwight Moore. Now you must be wondering, where is Blanche Taylor Moore? Since her arrest, and since she was sentenced to death on November 16, 1990, she has been held at the North Carolina Correctional Institution for Women in Raleigh, North Carolina. She still is there. She is the oldest woman on North Carolina's death row. I mean, she's like 88 and still there awaiting her execution. Man, this case is so crazy. So she definitely is a black widow for sure. She definitely makes this season. It's so hard and so sad because you really do think about these families, these victims, these people that have lost their lives to this lady just because I think from the get-go after what she had went through from her home life with her father and with him making her go and sleep with men and do things like that for money, I think she just kind of always had this thing in her head that no man or no man was ever going to be good enough. And so it really was a, how can I get more money? How can I survive being just by myself? And it just honestly seemed like it became like, I don't want to say like a hobby, but like an addiction. Like she just had to keep doing this because she was getting by with it. I don't know. It's very sad. It's very sad for the victims, their families, even the ones that survived her um, that went through that. I can't imagine being in love with somebody and marrying somebody and then finding out that they were secretly poisoning you and almost killed you. Like, that's insane. How would you ever trust? Like, how could you move on and get married? Oh, I already have trust issues. But yeah, that is the story of Blanche Taylor Moore. She's still kicking. It's crazy. And you guys can check out the blog. The photos will be there. But she looks like the littlest, like, sweetest old lady. It's just, like, so crazy. I feel like cases like this, it's like, okay, like, go back to, you know, a couple episodes ago, Gertrude. Gertrude's an older lady, but she looks crazy. Like, she, she looks like she's done some shit in her life. But, like, Blanche, like, she literally looks like she could be on the Golden Girls. It's like, it's just crazy. My heart also goes out to um, all of her family as well. I'm sure that was so devastating. And everybody who took the stand, her family, like siblings, her daughters, they all talked about like how proud they were of their mom of speaking her innocence and how they thought that she was innocent, how much of a kind and caring person she was. So my heart just aches for them too and how they have went on and moved on with their life or if they've been able to. But let me know what you guys think. Hop over on Caffeine Crime Podcast on Instagram, comment or message. Let me know what you think about this case. If I did miss anything, please message me as well and I'll add it to the blog for all of listeners to see there. So in case something is missed, you can check out the blog and see if it is there. Thank you guys for another great season of Caffeine and Crime. I know this one was all over the place. It's been very long. 
but I really appreciate you sticking around and listening. It means the world to me. And I will be back in actually just a couple of days because I want to wrap things up and announce a little bit more about spooky season and what you can expect from caffeine and crime. Thank you for listening. You'll hear from me very soon. Thank you.